0: When I was courting my wife, uh, or to say it less less formally, when I was putting the moves on Chelsea, all of my buddies tried to warn her, right? Those who knew me best told her time and time again, listen, they called me Marty, Marty is the devil. He's tricking you. Don't do it, Chelsea. You're too sweet. He's too evil. Naively, Chelsea laughed them off as jokers and entered into the covenant of marriage with me inside of the six months that we dated and got married. In the six plus years since our wedding, uh, she still hears that familiar refrain from my friends whenever they visit. I tried to tell you. I told you so. I don't have the worst friends in the world. They were offering these sediments uh, just in good fun. But as, as with most humor, there's always some truth in it. I really am a terrible sinner. And Chelsea really is sweet. Our marriage is a wonderful relationship that I get to enjoy, even though I don't deserve it. I'm routinely reminded of the gospel by my wife's loyalty and steadfast commitment to me, despite my sinfulness. Don't tell her I said all these nice things now. She's not in here, all right? She might get a big head or something. This morning, as we look at the back end of Exodus 33 and the front end of Exodus 34, what I want you to see is that God is going to continue on in a relationship with Israel that they absolutely, positively do not deserve. They are an evil people, and he is a sweet Savior. He's going to remain in relationship with them on the basis of his grace alone. Uh, We've likely defined grace together before, but allow me to do it here to make sure we're all on the same page. Grace is getting something undeserved. It's an undeserved gift. Uh, When I was in seminary, uh, oftentimes students would come to the professor the day an assignment was due and say, please just give me a, a little bit of grace here. I didn't get it done on time, by which they meant some more time to complete the assignment and one of my favorite professors in seminary was Dr. Merida and you've heard me quote him as we've worked through Exodus a whole bunch. Uh, he's just a really awesome guy. But, but he says that he always wants to respond to these students, giving you more time is not really giving you grace. Grace would be more like me saying, I'll write your paper for you, and you'll get an A+. Plus. But that's not happening in this class, all right? He actually doesn't say those things to students because he is just a a stand-up guy. He's really nice. But but his point is clear. Grace is not you doing your part, earning favor, and then asking God to do his part. It's not 50-50. Grace is 100% God's favor on the undeserved. We, like Israel, enjoy relationship with God only on the basis of his grace of his choice to love us loyally and steadfastly when we turn from our sin and submit ourselves to his kingship. Uh, Throughout Exodus, God has been weaving a picture of the salvation of all of humanity in his salvation of Israel. He drew them out of slavery in Egypt and into sonship as they sit at the foot of Sinai. They are becoming his people. He is rescuing them from exile into his presence likewise in chapters 32 through 34 we kind of have a microcosm of that we see israel rebel with idolatry in exodus 32 we see uh, moses begin to intercede for them at the back end of that chapter and then in exodus 34 where we are today for the most part we see the covenant renewed or restored Throughout all of this, God is making his glory known. That's the point of Exodus. We've said it over and over again that God is working sovereignly to save a special people for his own glory. And it's his glory that's center stage again this morning. And so our main idea, what I want you to dwell upon as we work through our text together, is that God displays his glory in his name, his people, and his messenger Lucky for you, I realized that part one of this was going to take a lot longer than I initially anticipated, and so we're just doing part one on your outline there on your insert, which is uh, the end of 33 and the beginning of chapter 34. We're going to talk about the covenant and his people and God's messenger uh, next week in conjunction with the conclusion of our series on Exodus. And so uh, only two sermons left, this one and the next one, and we will have traversed the entire book. Never thought we'd make it, did you? God displays his glory in his name. Let's pray together and get started. Heavenly Father, what we are not make us, what we have not give us, and what we know not teach us. Ready our hearts to receive your word now. By your grace, sow the seeds of the gospel into our souls that It might bear good fruit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to recap just a little bit more context here, uh, Israel married herself to Yahweh in chapter 24 during that covenant marriage ceremony. After they'd been taken out of Egypt, they were saying, you're our God. And God was saying, you're my people and we are together. God had some rules that they needed to follow inside of that covenant. Uh, Don't worship other gods. They thought, hey, we can keep that. And then we arrived at Exodus 32, which threw everything off kilter when the people went and whored after other gods. They broke the covenant. And so, as a consequence of breaking the covenant, God was going to eliminate all of them. But instead, he said to Moses, he invited Moses to stand in for the people and pray for them. And Moses did this, and God says, okay, uh, I'm not going to kill them and start over with you. We'll, We'll preserve the people. Still, there were consequences for the people's sin. The unrepentant were killed by the sword. And even the repentant had to endure uh, a mysterious plague that we looked at at the end of chapter 32. Then at the beginning of chapter 33, we heard the worst news. God was saying, I will give you my blessing, but I won't give you myself. I'm going to give you the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. Last week, we realized together that this was all very bad news. And so once again, Moses interceded for the people. And said, God, if you don't come with us, even your blessing is a curse. It's your presence that gives our lives meaning and satisfaction. You alone can bring us what we truly want, what we truly need. The promised land without you is no promised land. God, in verse 17, said, all right, Moses, I'll go with you. I'm going to go with the people. I will remain with the people. And so God has committed himself to keep his promises and preserve his glory on the basis of his love for and relationship with Moses, who is his mediator. Likewise, we spoke of this last week, that uh, it's on the basis of our relationship with God's son, his perfect mediator, that we're able to enjoy fellowship with God. So God has granted Moses' request in chapter 17, and now in verse 18, which is the first new verse that we're going to cover this morning, Moses is feeling uh, like he's on a roll, I guess. And so he has the nerve to make quite an audacious request. He says in verse 18, Please let me see your glory, or show me your glory. And I love what Spurgeon says of this request. He says, Why? It is the greatest petition man has ever asked of God. And it is just that. It's a marvelous petition, but it's also kind of dumb. Because for Moses to see the fullness of God's glory would mean his death. Still, Moses had tasted and seen that God was good and he, he wants more. I think that's what it's like to know God. To know God is to want him more, to know more of his beauty, more of his grace, more of his nature. That's what Moses is after. But he's after knowing more of God, not just for his own benefit, but for the benefit of the people. You see, God had promised to be with Israel, and Moses, by asking for a display of God's glory, is asking for an authentication. He's kind of asking God to put it in writing. He said, God, you said you're going to still continue to be with us despite our sinfulness, despite our waywardness, despite our idolatry, and what I need you to do is to authenticate this once more just as you did at the burning bush and just as you did with the signs and wonders as we exited Egypt. And so God responds in verse 19 to Moses with a, yeah, no. Look with me at verse 19. God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion But you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. God says, I'm not trying to kill you here, but I will authenticate my presence by giving you a fresh experience of my glory and my goodness. But I'm going to stop short of actually letting you look at my face, because that would kill you, and I'm out for your good. God's glory is going to be shown to Moses, yes, in this visible display as he passes before Moses. But I want you to make note of, and I'm going to repeat it on purpose throughout the rest of the message, is that God's glory is most clearly displayed to Moses, not in this theophany, which theophany just means God showing up in a visible way, right? The theophany was at the um, burning bush, that was a theophany. Uh, Cloud and pillar, those are theophanies. He's not going to declare his glory or show his glory most clearly in his theophany, but in the declaration of his name. We're going talk more about God's name in a moment, but first let's consider verse 21. The Lord said, Here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand. Until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. And so, again, we have God, just like last week, describing himself in human terms so that we can wrap our brains around it. He's revealing himself to us in human language. And we said uh, our big word last week was anthropomorphism. That's what this is again. It just means God describing himself to humanity in human language. And so if you really want to sound smart after church, when someone asks you, what did you guys study today? You can say, we considered the anthropomorphic theophany at the end of Exodus chapter 33. And they will be surely impressed. Anyhow, the point here is that the language is used to describe God to us. God doesn't have a literal back or face to behold. Like a literal giant hand is not going to just go right in front of Moses' face as God passes by us, not how this deal works. It's just in language for us to understand. Douglas Stewart is helpful. He writes this, This experience provides something of an analogy for Moses. In the same way that we do not see much of a person when we see only his or her back walking away from us, but can still tell who it is if we know that person well enough, Moses was allowed to sense what God caused him to recognize as the back of God's visibly manifested glory, moving away from him, and could therefore understand that he had perceived God's true, though not at all complete, presence. And so Moses' experience is going to be really awesome. He's going to see something really, really cool, But again, God's response to show Moses his glory does not show up mainly in this vision, but the proclamation of his name. And it's his name that captures his character and his countless perfections. God is going to, in response to Moses' request to see his glory, is going to give Moses a name rather than a face. And friends, what I want to point out here, right at the front end, is that we might not get a vision from God, from the cleft of a rock like Moses. But nobody has it better than we do. Not even Moses. Moses got a name instead of a face, but in Christ we've been given both a name and a face. Colossians says of Jesus, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ and you have been filled by him who is the head of every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by the putting off of flesh, but in the circumcision of the Messiah. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all of your trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with all of its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. We know God's name and we've seen God's face. Second Corinthians 4, 6 says, God has said, light, let light shine out of the darkness, and he's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, we we get to enjoy God's presence not from a distance in the cleft of a rock covered by the hand of God, but from his Holy Spirit who dwells within us. This is infinitely better. We get God within us because unlike Moses, who was protected from God's holy justice by the hand of God, Jesus took on our sin as his own and went before God, not to be protected by God, but to be crushed beneath the hand of God. We get undeserved relationship with the God of the universe because we were protected by God God protected us from Himself, from his, own un, from his own holy, righteous wrath. I mean, we deserve deserve to suffer and be separated from God because of our sins. But instead, He protects us from hell by taking hell for us on the cross. I mean that, that's the gospel. That those who put their faith in Jesus by following him get to enjoy undeserved utopian relationship with God forever, and they get a foretaste of that now. The real happily ever after of the Christian gospel is the consequence of God's character and his nature. You see, the good news flows out of the fountainhead that is God's name. And so God shows Moses his glory, yes, but he shows him his glory mostly by telling him his name. Look at verse 5 of chapter 34, which explains the actual experience Moses has. The Lord came down in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, again it's his name, Yahweh. Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. A quick note about God's name, uh, Yahweh there. A lot of your translations probably just say, The Lord or the Lord, the Lord. And the reason is, uh, Jews used to not say the name Yahweh because it was so holy. And so when they were reading it in the scrolls, they would just replace it with Adonai or Lord. And so if you have Lord in all caps in your Bible, that's what it stands in for, is Yahweh. And the translation I'm using, I'm just translating it, the word God's name, right out of there, Yahweh. That's what's going on. Um, But when the Bible does use God's name, when the Bible speaks God's name, it's always something more than simply a title, God's name stands for his entire being. It's his nature. His name is who he is. So when God passes by Moses and says, Yahweh, Yahweh, he's revealing himself as the God of creation and redemption. The God who made and saves his people. Again, what God mainly does in response to Moses' request to see glory is to preach a sermon on his name. God's name tells us what he's like. Let's consider what he's like by looking at some of the perfections that are embedded in his name. First, to those in need, he is compassionate or merciful. God cares about all who bear his image and call him Father. God cares about your situation. He is sympathetic with our weaknesses. His heart is drawn to help us whenever we are in need. He cares for you. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The Bible over and over again shows us God's compassion, especially in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus heals the sick in the crowds because he is moved with compassion. He feeds the 4,000 because he is moved with compassion. Perhaps my, my favorite example of Jesus showing compassion uh, is when the man with leprosy in Mark chapter 1 comes up to him, falls on his knees and begs him. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then we read in Mark 1, 41, Jesus moved with compassion, reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him. Be made clean clean and immediately the disease left the man and he was healed the last one's my favorite for a number of reasons um but one of the one of the weird ones i guess is that the word that's translated compassion here it should it it really doesn't it, it kind of the context says yes jesus is compassionate and he acts but the the literal meaning of the word if you just bring it across in english is to be angry or to be furious and so uh, what our tra- translators have done for us is to help show us, like, Jesus isn't mad at the leper, right? That he's compassionate and he's moved to heal his leprosy. But in doing that, we, we miss some of what's going on here. You see, Jesus' compassion is not empty. It doesn't just feel sorry, like there's nothing he can do about it. He gets angry and he changes the situation. He gets righteously angry because he's, he's angry at sin. He's furious that this man's whole life has been thrown out of whack because of a skin disease, that he's isolated from community, unable to worship God. He hates sin. And so in his angry compassion, he acts to heal the man. I just love the whole scene. This episode gives us a picture of God's love for his people and his anger at our suffering and broken world. You also see Jesus gets furious at the tomb of Lazarus too. Same word comes across, compassion. He is angry at death, and he acts to change the circumstances. Also, look, ordinarily somebody's made unclean by the touch of a leper, but when the leper touches Jesus, instead of being made unclean, he is cleansed. Jesus touches the untouchable and makes them lovable. Love that in response to the man's faith, Jesus remedies his curse, takes away his shame and removes his defilement. The healing of this leper points us to the cross where Jesus is compassionate for us and angry enough at our sin to take the penalty for it himself. Jesus remedies the curse of our sin. He removes our shame and our guilt by taking that defilement upon himself. Jesus can proclaim all who have faith in him clean and give them life because he's died in their place and lives as master over death. God's compassion acts, acts to make clean, to bring relief, to save those who trust in him. And praise God for his compassion. Uh, God also describes himself as gracious. We talked about grace on the front end. Remember, it's something undeserved, an undeserved gift, getting an A-plus on the paper that the professor wrote for you instead of an F for the missing assignment. If God were not gracious and simply gave us what we deserved, we would draw each and every breath living in the agony and torment of hell. That's what we deserve. But God doesn't give us what we deserve. When we follow Jesus, he gives us what only Jesus deserves peace and perfect relationship with himself so thankful for his graciousness thirdly we see that god is slow to anger long-suffering in some of your translations he's patient with imperfect people israel needed a patient god they murmured and complained and rebelled but god was patient he hasn't changed like israel we need a patient god I know if you are like me, your sins come upon you daily. Daily you fail to live out your faith in a way that's perfect. Daily you are waging war against the flesh. And daily God is patient with you. So thankful for his patience. Next, God preaches that he is great and rich in loyal or faithful, steadfast love. However fickle and unreliable people may be in their relationship to God, he is nothing of the sort and can be counted on in every situation and at all times to be completely faithful to his promises. Uh, Typically, when I have personal experiences, I don't like to share a whole lot of personal illustrations, but recently I've been doing a lot. Uh, typically when I have an experience I like to put it in my back pocket and say maybe I'll use that as an illustration um, you know, five years from now when everyone's forgotten that it was me uh, or what had gone on. But I made an exception because last Sunday uh, I had an unexpected lesson in what loyal covenanted love looks like uh, when Mike and I visited Phyllis Rhodes to celebrate her 92nd birthday party uh, with her, her husband John, uh, and some other family members. Now, if you're new here, you, you likely don't know Phyllis and John. They haven't been capable of gathering together with us in quite a while, uh, but they are part of our fellowship. Uh, they gave the best parts of their life to this church. They've run well the Christian life. And despite the fact they can't be here, they, they still pray for us. John always tells me, oh, I've been praying for you. How, how are your children? And sometimes he knows more about my life than I do when I see him. I'm like, how does this happen? I think it's because Henry's a chatty Cathy, maybe tells him. But they, they pray for us. John prays for us. And, and Phyllis did too until she became uh, what I, I, I think she's unable to now. Um, for those of you who don't know, through a series of unfortunate events, she's become blind uh, and is suffering from dementia along with the normal pains of aging. Uh, at this point in her life, she has to be pushed uh, from room to room in a bed or a whe- wheelchair and often calls out with questions about where she is. In the short time that Mike and I were at the nursing home, uh, she must have asked to go home a dozen times. She'd call out, John, in that affectionate but firm way you call out your spouse's name even now, you know what I mean? Like you could tell she's said his name thousands of times over the years. John, where are we? John, I want to go home. And John, patient as a farmer waiting on a spring rain, would reply with something akin to, It's okay, dear. The place we are in is is quite nice. I like it here. Let's stay a few more moments, and then I'll get you home. After the cake had been cut and the coffee had uh, grown to be lukewarm, uh, she called out one time in a really frightened tone, John, do you love me? My stomach caught in my throat, and uh, tears came to my eyes. And John replied casually in less than a heartbeat, Yes, I love you, Phyllis. You're mine. I've loved my Phyllis a long, long time. She had been carrying some tension in her body, and uh, upon hearing his words, drifted off to sleep. This, friends, is how God loves you, faithfully, loyally, despite your ugly circumstances, despite the fact that you are broken, despite the fact that you have nothing to offer him, and that you often forget him. He loves you. You never have to wonder God's answer to the question, Father, do you love me? The cross of Christ proclaims his answer. Yes, I love you. You're mine because you are my son's. I've loved you a long time. Before the foundations of the earth. Before time began, I loved you. Uh, I can't tell you how thankful I am for John and Phyllis and for the saints that have walked faithfully before us. But I I must confess, I do not call or visit our homebound friends enough. And so I want to encourage you along with myself this morning to take the 15 minutes of your day that it takes to stop and see someone. Or to make a phone call and say a quick prayer. It will bless you in the most extraordinarily ordinary way. We mustn't forget our mothers and fathers in Christ that have come before us. They have much to teach us. And they are much loved by God. It's our job to show them that he hasn't forgotten them by not forgetting them ourselves. We must love them as God loves us, loyally, steadfastly. Next, we see that God is forgiving. Now, the Hebrew word used here means to lift or to carry. Gives us a picture of what God does with our sin. He, he takes it away, lifting it from our shoulders. To show, uh, to show us how forgiving he is, Philip Reichen writes, God lists three things he's willing to forgive. Wickedness, rebellion, and Sin. These are the three categories of unrighteousness. And so this list works as kind of a synecdoche of all the categories of sin. It encompasses every kind of sin you could possibly think of committing. In other words, it tells us that God is willing to forgive any and all kinds of sin. He's willing to forgive your sin. I think sometimes we can feel so weighed down with guilt that we wonder whether uh, there's any way for God to forgive us tempted to feel that we've done something so bad or so evil that we've fallen beyond the reach of his grace. But however we might define what we've done, God is willing to forgive our kind of sinner. God is compassionate, gracious, patient, loving, and willing to forgive any who will ask for his mercy. This this is one of the beautiful truths of salvation. Salvation that the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins on which the promise of eternal life so decidedly depends is embedded in the very name and nature of God. It's who he is. He doesn't save us because he has to, but because he wants to. He is a saving God, a loving God. That said, God does not simply sweep sin under the rug. He deals with it. God is holy and just. He punishes wrongdoing. Timothy George writes, God's love is not sentimental. It is holy. It is tender, but not squishy. It involves not only compassion, kindness, and mercy beyond measure, but also indignation against injustice and unremitting opposition to all evil. Those who reject God will be held accountable. All sin will be rightly adjudicated. As the prophet Amos says, justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The scandal of the gospel, though, is that while God takes our sins so seriously, he also loves us seriously to the point that he came up with a way to end evil without ending us. By letting the justice due to sin, due to you and me, rolled down on Christ. Jesus took the wrath that you and I deserve so that we could have what we don't deserve. Relationship with God. But for those who reject God's love, that's what unrepentant sin is, a rejection of God's love. For those who reject God's provision for their sin... Their guilt remains, and justice waits until Jesus returns to end evil once and for all. Say it differently, all sin has been or will be punished. If you are in Christ, your sin was punished on the cross of Christ. Your judgment day happened when he died 2,000-ish years ago. But if you are outside of Christ, Your judgment day is in the future. God is going to eradicate this world of all evil and sin. He's going to restore everything to the way it was supposed to be. Stuart helps us understand the last part of this verse about the children uh, in case we've forgotten since the first time we encountered it. This is what he writes. Bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation has been widely misunderstood. It does not represent an assertion that God actually punishes an innocent generation for sins of the previous generation. This would be contrary to Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, which says, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. Rather, this oft-repeated theme speaks of God's determination to punish successive generations for committing the same sins they learned from their parents. In other words, this verse tells us that as sin continues, so does God's justice. There is a harrowing truth here. It is that even though children aren't punished for the sins of their parents, they often inherit the sins of their parents. What I mean is this the lives of parents train their children. For this reason, parents must labor to obey Deuteronomy 6 5 through 9. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be on your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Speak of the Lord's love. Always, always be training those around you in the gospel. It's how we do this can look very different, and and that's okay, but we must do it and we must not do it alone. Notice the passage in Deuteronomy is spoken not only to parents, but to God's people corporately. It begins with verse 4, Hear, O Israel. I think this at least implies that the community of God's people ought to support and help parents in the training of their children. So uh, even if you don't have kids, or parenthood passed you by a long time ago, I want you to know that that you still are teaching every time you engage with the next generation. Every time you pick up one of my kids or correct him, more likely, you're teaching. You are spiritual mothers and fathers. Let those children among you see the beauty and joy of following Jesus. Let them see it in you and in your life. Let them see it in your love for their parents when you babysit for them. Let them see it when you play with them and pray for them. Parents, you are vital to your children. They will likely follow in your footsteps. What will your legacy be? Mothers and fathers, mostly mothers, are the church's most effective missionaries. Parents, you are your children's greatest influence and their greatest teachers. Training them is your job, and you must take it seriously. Teach them to love Jesus and his church. Teach them the gospel. Teach them God's name. Teach them to respond to God's name as Moses does. In verse 8, Moses immediately bowed down to the ground and worshipped. And then he said, My Lord, if I have indeed found favor in your sight, my Lord, please go with us. Even though this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wrongdoing and sin and accept us as your own possession. You see, the response to hearing God's name is repentance, prayer, and worship. Again, Moses asks for a visual of God's glory. And he gets one, but much more of the text is given to God's glory as it's revealed in his name and in his word. I mean, if you just look at this section, you can see much more time is given to Yahweh explaining his name to Moses. He says, show me your glory, and God says, you'll get a glimpse of that, but I'm going to tell you what I am like. I think this is what we need as well. Not so much to see what God looks like, but to hear the true words that God has spoken about Himself. After all, Romans tells us that faith comes not from seeing God, but from hearing His Word. Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. Do you want to encounter the glory of God? Have you said to God, show me your glory? He has. You need only to listen to his word. Hear his name in the gospel. Hear his name as you meditate on the scriptures. Jesus has died in your place and raised from the dead so that you might live together with him in undeserved relationship with God. That's the gospel that reveals God to us, that makes relationship with God possible for us. The Bible is the story about how Jesus rescues. And there is no other name by which we can be saved. So let me exhort you this morning once more. Turn from your sin. Pray for forgiveness. Give rule of your life to God. Give Him your worship. Delight in Him with wholehearted Obedience that is rooted in affection rather than obligation. Wake up every morning, not because you have to or you have to go here or there, but because you love God. Start each day by remembering the gospel and getting saved again. And saying to yourself, it's by the name of Jesus Christ that I am saved. my prayer is that we would all respond to God's name in this way. That we poor and needy, wicked and wounded, sick and sore sinners would come to Christ who stands ready to save us, ready to hold us in his arms. This is the glory of God. And it's wrapped up in his name. Let us come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when we trust in Jesus, we no longer have to fear judgment because the cross was our judgment day. We thank you for displaying your glory in your name. Thank you that embedded in your name is your nature to save and love a lost people like us. We thank you that you are justly angry at the sinful evil that is tearing apart your creation and we rejoice that you will return one day to end evil, and make all things new. It is for this we long. And it is to your glory and to your name that we respond to your word by coming together to your table now to eat and drink this morning. Be with us in this time. Amen.